you have your Bibles, please open up to Acts chapter 9. I did a little better this time. Uh, A couple of times ago, I think when I preached, I talked about the dangers of having lunch with my mother-in-law simply because of the sheer goodness of what she fixes for lunch and how much of it she fixes, Uh, but I did better this time. Um, Dessert was a little smaller, ate a little less, so hopefully my uh, mind will be a little sharper, Uh, but I got lots of notes just in case it's not, so so there we go. Um, Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19 of the message I've entitled, The Salvation of the Chief of Sinners. The Salvation of the Chief of Sinners. Let's read Acts chapter 9. It will begin in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Well, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food... He was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. There are four main characters in this text that I want to look at today that will make up the the main points of, um, of this message. Four main characters, and the first one is Saul, the violent persecutor. Saul, the violent 
persecutor. Again, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. When we think about Saul, we know this story probably well, Um, so this is a familiar text, but let's think through it again like it might be the first time and we might see things we might not have seen before or see them in a new light. So as we think about Saul, this violent persecutor of the church, we need to see in relation to the church that his hatred was real, his persecution was indeed violent, and his plan was relentless. I mean, he really hated Jesus. He really hated the church. We saw this in Acts chapter 8, verse 3. It says that Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Our text in verse 1 today, Galatians 1.13, later Saul, Paul, looking back on his former life, says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And then later in 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Saul hated Jesus and he hated the church. And we have to say the church could not have had a more capable and determined opponent. We really couldn't have. And the reasons for Saul's relentless determination to destroy the church is actually a pretty staggering one if we think about it. He thought he was doing a good and godly and necessary service for God. He thought he was advancing the truth of God as he violently persecuted the church of Christ. Jesus had said this would happen if we remember back that a time would come when people would think they were actually offering service to God when they opposed his people. And that is exactly what we see happening here. Saul was a faithful Jew seeking to stamp out the name of this blasphemer named Jesus as well as those who follow him. Remember, blasphemy was punishable by death. And so in Saul's mind, Jesus got what was coming to him And he was personally committed to ensure the church got what was coming to it for continuing to say that Jesus was Lord. And so humanly speaking, apart from armed resistance, which the church would not give, there was no way to stop Saul. And the church was quite literally at Saul's mercy, and he didn't have one drop of mercy for the church. If he had his way, there would be no more church. There would be no more followers of Christ. And so we would not count Saul as a likely candidate to take the gospel to the nations, to make disciples and plant churches. He would be the very last person in the world that we would consider that we would ever expect to be a Christian, even less a Christian missionary. But before we elaborate on that point, I want to make a couple of application points as we think about Saul, the persecutor. And what we can see here in this text. First off, we need to know that the church should expect opposition from the world. 
We should expect opposition from the world, and we should not be surprised when that opposition turns into violent persecution. Men like Saul will always be around. And while in our day, at least here in the West, in America, in you know, more European countries, we aren't experiencing violent persecution, it does seem like there are individuals whose mission in life is to stamp out Christianity and try to convince as many people as possible that believing in God is a stupid thing. Think of the, the God Delusion, the book by Richard Dawkins, or The End of Faith by Sam Harris. Or even the one by Christopher Hitchens, which you can tell the title is intentional, God is not great. Men like this seem to have made it their mission to bring down Christians and the church, and we shouldn't be surprised that they do. But we also need to expect persecution, opposition from the state, the, the government level. I mean, if you think about it, Saul in many ways was kind of the enforcer of state persecution by the Jews on their own people. And we know throughout the New Testament times, there was sporadic persecution throughout the Roman Empire. Um, and there were later times in the following centuries where it was more empire-wide persecution simply for believing and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. Think of our own day, the state-sponsored suppression of Christianity, outright persecution in places like China, Pakistan, North Korea, Iran, Nigeria, Afghanistan, and, and more, where just proclaiming the name of Jesus runs the risk of getting you thrown in jail, losing your job, sent to a re-education camp, being separated from your family, maybe never seeing them again. To a much lesser, although a sadly increasing extent, in our own land, Christians are under immense pressure not to speak about. Certainly don't try to live out your convictions. In many sectors of the business world, it's increasingly difficult for Christians to even be a Christian because there's just outright hostility towards the Christian faith. We must not be naive to think that it won't get worse here in America or that it can't. I think it very likely will. But when we think about persecution and the fact that we don't need to be surprised at it, that it doesn't need to, to take us aback as though this something strange is happening, we need to ask why. Why persecution? Why is this happening? Let's remember what Jesus himself said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He said, Blessed are those who were persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And so Jesus is saying, when people treat you wrong for your faith in Christ, it's not going to be because they're doing it for a righteous reason. They will make stuff up in order to get you. But Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul says this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Later in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas on their mission, they're going back through churches they've been and they're encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom 
of God. And so what, how do we respond? What is our response when persecution, opposition comes? Well, first and foremost, most importantly of all, we continue to preach the gospel. That is the one thing we can never stop doing. We never silence the gospel. We continue to make Christ known no matter what. We pray for those who persecute us, not just for God to you know, relax their, their intensity towards us, but we pray for their salvation. We pray for our persecutors to come to know the Jesus they hate. We pray for our leaders. As Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that we can lead a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, and a way to commend the gospel. But even more, we count our reward in heaven with Christ as greater than whatever and whoever we may lose when persecution comes. Hebrews 13, 13 and 14, the author exhorts us to go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So we must expect opposition and not be surprised when it turns even violent. But let's go back to Saul. From an earthly perspective, Saul was the single most unlikely candidate imaginable to become a believer and a devoted disciple and a faithful missionary for Christ. And it's not just that he wasn't a believer. He was actively hostile to the faith. He knew about Christianity and he was seeking to stamp it out. When it comes to people like Saul, if we're honest, our prayers might tend to be more along the lines of, God, please take him out. God, please make him or her fall or something like that. From an earthly perspective, Saul not only seemed like he would never become a Christian, we might even think he could not become one. For surely he was so hardened in his sin and given over to a depraved mind that he would never believe. But let's make it even more personal. Are there people in your life, friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, that you would view like you would view Saul. Pretty much beyond any hope of ever trusting in Jesus and following him. I mean, ask a tough question. Who have you given up on? Who have you, you know, as they used to say, washed your hands over and said in frustration, I'm done. I'm done with them. I mean, we know where this story is going. We all know where this story is going. We know what's about to happen. Jesus is about to interrupt and save this violent opponent named Saul. Do we believe that Jesus can interrupt the life of that person that we think is outside the possibility of being saved? Do we really believe he can do that? So as we move into this next section, keep that person or those people in mind as we think about the next major character in this story. We've looked at Saul, the violent persecutor. Now let's look at Christ, the sovereign Savior. Look again at verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you were persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So what shall we say about this Jesus who confronted Saul, who interrupted his life on his travels to Damascus? He is the Son of God. He conquered death died on the cross, rose from the dead on the third day. He is God's long-promised Messiah, the son of David who will rule all nations, and he does rule all the kings on earth for all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is the king over all. He will do everything that pleases him, and there is no one who can stop him or stay his hand and say to him, you can't do that, you can't say that. You can't go there. Jesus is the sovereign Lord of all. And he is actively building his church. He's adding to it day by day. He calls men and women and children out of darkness into his marvelous light. He is transferring people from the domain of darkness into his own kingdom. And he's doing that even today. He will save his people He will call them all. He will miss none of them. He will lose none of them, including men and women like Saul of Tarsus. Let's consider that Jesus is sovereign in salvation and perfect in his timing. He is sovereign in salvation and perfect in his timing, meaning he saves whomever he wills exactly the moment he chooses to. He saves whomever he wills exactly the moment he chooses to. Think about this. Saul had been chosen by the Father from before the beginning of time to be saved by Jesus at this very moment. Not any earlier and certainly not any later. Saul had an appointment with Jesus that he had no clue about until Jesus interrupted his travel plans. As Steve Lawson so clearly said it, God always gets his man. Jesus had his sight set on Saul to be his chosen instrument, to proclaim his name, to go to the nations and proclaim the gospel. He had his sight set on Saul long before Saul had his sights set on the church in order to destroy it. You see, Saul thought he was going to Damascus to arrest Christians and bind them in chains, and then drag them back to Jerusalem. That's what he thought he was going to do. But Jesus was waiting. Jesus was waiting for the appointed moment in the plan of God to call this Christ-hating opponent to himself. And let me just ask honestly here, would this, for any of you, be similar to your situation today? Did you come here, or are you listening by live stream, with some other purpose than encountering Jesus? Is encountering the risen Christ why you're here? Or are you here just because you're supposed to be? It's the right thing to do. If you're a little bit younger, are you here because mom and dad made you come? Are you present in this service because someone else asked you to be here, but you really have no interest No interest in Jesus, no interest in the church, no interest in Christianity. If that would describe you, will you for just a moment consider that maybe your plans are actually a part of God's bigger plans? Maybe Christ has brought you here 
even though you came for a different reason. Maybe Christ has brought you here to hear the preaching of the word that you might encounter Jesus in a most unexpected way. We shouldn't be surprised that this is how God works. He is sovereign over the salvation of sinners. And it is the testimony of his grace that he saves and does not give to everyone what we all so rightly deserve for our continued rebellion against him. Saul certainly is in no position to claim anything against God and neither are any of us. And so let's not miss the wonder in the beauty of God's continuing patience. Saul was kept in existence at every moment by God's power. And as God was upholding Saul, keeping his cells together, allowing his heart to beat and his lungs to expand and bring in oxygen, everything that God was doing for Saul, Saul was then turning back in rebellion against God and in opposition and persecution to the people of God. Marvel at the patience of God with us in our rebellion. Do we see his mercy? Because it is everywhere. Will we see God's undeserved mercy to us? If you're not a believer here, if you've not yet turned from your sin and turned in faith to Jesus, will you see that every moment of your existence is a gift that God has given you? Every moment is a gift of sheer grace. He could take you out any of us in a moment and he'd be right to do so so think if God has brought you here today and you are without Christ maybe that's because today is the day you lay down your rebellion when you own that you are a sinner in need of salvation you admit that you need Jesus because only in Jesus will your rebellion be forgiven and your sins washed away because only in Jesus are we made to be at peace with God and even more adopted into his family as his beloved children. It was God's time for Saul. And I pray that it would be God's time for someone here today. But let's consider what actually took place in verses 3 through 9. Jesus appears to Saul in all his glory. And so bright, so pure is that glory that it literally knocks Saul to the ground. It didn't take place at night, but during the day... And in a region where the sun shines bright, Saul is knocked to the ground by the glory of Jesus because his glory shines brighter than all the stars in the universe. In comparison to the glory of Jesus, the sun that is shining out there right now, it's like a, a dark room with the curtains closed. And this proud, violent Pharisee is quite literally humbled into the dust by the Jesus he thought he had figured out. Jesus asked him a question, but it's not the question we would have, would have expected him to ask. You know, we would think Jesus would ask, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? But that's not what he asked. He asked, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why would he ask that question? I think he asked it because he's communicating something to Paul and he's communicating something to each of us Namely, that Jesus is so closely identified with his people that to persecute them is to persecute him. There's an intimate, a vital union between Christ and the church such that to oppose one is to oppose the other. To hate one is to hate the other. And this means it is impossible to be a Christian while rejecting the church. 
to place your faith in Jesus is to likewise commit yourself to the people of Jesus because you're one of them if you're a Christian. To follow Jesus is to follow Jesus with the church. That's why church membership is so vital to the Christian life and to growing in our faith. God does not intend for any of us to live the Christian life on our own, apart from the community of faith. That's why, let's just say, for instance, if you're a college student and you've not joined a church since coming to Athens, I would urge you to seriously consider membership. Seriously consider it. Strongly consider it. I mean, regular attendance is not enough um, at an assembly. It never will be apart from a commitment to a local assembly. The joining of your life with the lives of others in order to follow Jesus together, that's part of what you're committing to when you commit to Jesus. And if you've been neglecting this in any way, come talk to me, come talk to one of the elders. There's plenty of members in this church who would love to talk to you about why we love North Avenue and why we'd love for you to consider being a part of what's going on here. But back to Saul. Saul responds to Jesus' question with a question. He says, who are you, Lord? To which Jesus answers, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now we know from Acts 22.10, when Saul retells this story at a later point, that he also asked, what shall I do, Lord? To which Jesus replied, rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And so now this energetic opponent of Christianity who was planning to bind believers and drag them back to Jerusalem has to be led by the hand by his traveling companions into the city of Damascus. Do not miss the significance of that. He was going to drag Christians away and now he can't even go in the city without help. This once proud persecutor has been humbled to the point of absolute dependence on others. He's been struck blind in the presence of the glory of Christ. And for three days, he remained blind and neither ate nor drank. I think it's safe to say that during those three days, Saul was doing some very serious reevaluation of his life and what was most important. I mean, think about it. Think about what would be going through his mind. He knew he had been living a lie. He knew that he had been wrong about Jesus and that he had been wrong to persecute the church. And he knew that the Jesus he'd been so wrong about had now called him and claimed him for his own disciple and then told him, Saul, I have a significant plan for your life. That was a life-changing few days for this man. He was coming to terms with everything that had happened and with how he was about to start on an entirely new trajectory. And that is what Jesus does when he interrupts our lives, when he calls us to himself and claims us to be his own disciple. Everything changes. Now, sometimes the change is more publicly noticeable like in the case of Saul, someone who had gone a significant number of years not knowing Christ, not trusting Christ, not following Christ. And the conversion, the change is dramatic. Everybody can notice it. I mean, we have so many testimonies in this church of that very thing happening. 
a good number of you here, you might can see yourself somewhat in Saul. In the sim- you, know, you might not have been you know, seeking to destroy the church, but you didn't have a desire for Christ. You, you, were, you knew you were turning away from Christ. You didn't want anything to do with him. But then Christ called you and everything changed. He called you out of darkness, as Peter says, into his marvelous light. He changed you. Gave you a new life, opened your eyes, opened your ears. You saw him, you heard him, you ran to him, and you've never been the same. Why does that happen? It is impossible to behold the glory of Jesus and not be changed. It's impossible. You cannot see him in his glory and leave the same. If God opens your eyes to see the glory of his son, you will see it and you will be forever changed. That's why Christianity is about so much more than merely, um, merely adopting new standards or turning over a new leaf or making a New Year's resolution to try to do better or pulling yourself up by your own bootstrap saying, well, I'm going to do better now and I'm going to do right. At the heart of Christianity, at the heart of what it means to become a Christian is a radical and lasting change on the inside such that the entire trajectory of our life changes. Our most fundamental allegiances shift. It's what the Bible calls new birth, being born again, regeneration. It's Ezekiel's dry bones being clothed again with flesh and the Spirit being breathed into them so that they are now alive. It's the writing of the law of God on the heart. It's the ripping out of the heart of stone and the implanting of a heart of flesh so that there's life and there's feeling toward God. It's Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb into new life, even though he had been verifiably dead for a number of days. It is spiritual resurrection. It is something only God can do, and we all desperately need it. And if and when God does it, you'll know it. You won't miss it, and you'll never be the same. So sometimes the change is public, dramatic. But there's something else we need to consider, especially in our own congregation with so many little children that God has blessed us with. Sometimes this change will happen early, like it has in the lives of many who've been raised in Christian homes. Heard the gospel from an early age. Faith comes early and it shapes the entire outlook of a person's life. And by God's grace, you will have grown up or are growing up already being nurtured in that faith and in the church. And so for folks like this, Jesus, Christian life, involvement in the church, missions, evangelism, these are familiar, just a part of life. They're old friends. And that is just as glorious in God's sight, as the dramatic conversion. In both cases, in the case of the believer who became a believer so much later, and in the case of the the believer who became a believer so much earlier, in both cases, it is only by the sovereign working of Christ, by the Spirit in the heart, that that person believes. Both were just as dead in sin. Both are just as guilty before God. Both just as deserving of the wrath of God and hell forever. And neither would have nor could have believed had God not called them. 
supernaturally, sovereignly, miraculously, God opens blind eyes to the glory of Christ in the gospel. Any and all who are saved are saved only by the grace of God, enabling faith in Christ alone for salvation and eternal life. And so let all of us with the Bible trace our faith back to the sovereign and effective initiative of God in calling us and giving us new life for opening our eyes to the glory of His Son. So we've seen Saul the violent persecutor, Christ the sovereign Savior, and quickly let us consider Ananias the obedient servant. Again, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias is a Christian only mentioned a few times in the book of Acts. And that's it. We don't hear anything else about him anywhere. But the value of the role he plays in his obedient service to Christ is so great as to never be measured. Because remember, Ananias was one of the Christians Saul was going to Damascus to bind with chains and then drag back to Jerusalem. And based on the conversation that he has with Jesus, I think it's clear Ananias knew who Saul was. But even more importantly, though, Ananias knew who Jesus was and he trusted him when Jesus told him to go to Saul. And I want to offer a quick but brief word about this encounter, lest we be mistaken about the nature of this conversation between Ananias and Jesus. Ananias was not receiving some sort of burden or impression about something that he thought God might be saying to him, and that it was crazy, but he did it anyway, even though he wasn't truly sure if it was God that was saying it. Or God was actually speaking. He only knew that it had been Christ speaking after he had gone to Saul and done what he thought God was saying to him. No, Jesus directly, clearly, audibly spoke to Ananias and Ananias clearly, directly, audibly spoke back to Jesus. It was a real conversation. And I mention this only because this kind of direct revelation from God is not something we should expect or look forward to in our own lives. The time of the book of Acts was a unique time in the history of the church as the very foundation of the church was being laid in the life and the ministry and the teaching of the apostles. Signs and wonders in this time were common. They were helping confirm the message that was being preached. And so was more direct speech like what Ananias received from Jesus. But the testimony and the teaching of the apostles has been laid down in the very Bibles that we're studying today. And their testimony is not only the word of God to the church, it is the sufficient word of God to the church and for the church until Jesus comes back. So don't listen for voices. If you hear them, please come talk to us. We'd love to help you. 
Um, don't listen for voices. Don't exhaust yourself looking for signs. And be very careful of burdens and impressions and strange feelings you may experience. The word from Jesus that you need is the word he has already given in this book right here. So study this word as diligently as you can. Study it diligently, day and night. Praying all the while that God would give insight so that you could understand it and you could properly apply it to your life. That is what is safe for us. And even more, it lines up with what Scripture itself shows us about how we should expect God to speak and lead His people. And so Ananias, here's the neat thing about him. Fearing Christ more than Saul. Fearing Christ more than Saul, he obeyed his Lord and went and did exactly as Jesus had commanded him. Paul will later relate more of what Ananias said, and there's more than what's contained here. But everything that Ananias was told to do, he did. And so I want to ask one question about Ananias. How was it that he was able to obey? I mean, simply put, Ananias knew that Christ could save anyone. He knew that. Even such a violent persecutor of the church like Saul. Ananias knew Jesus, and he knew that Jesus could save. Yeah, he was initially hesitant. We all would have been. But when Jesus said, this is my guy whom I've chosen, Ananias did not hesitate anymore. He went and did exactly as Christ commanded. And we've already mentioned it, but I think it bears mention again as we get close to the end. Do we really believe that Jesus can save anyone he pleases. That there is no one, regardless of the state of their rebellion against him, regardless of the expression of that rebellion, do we believe that Jesus can save? Ananias believed in Christ's power to save, and so he went trusting that Christ was working in Saul, just like he said. And upon that truth, let us resolve to never withhold the gospel from anyone, We never withhold it from anyone, either in our words to them or in our prayers for them. We can test just how great our faith in Jesus is to save by whether or not we pray for him to save. That is convicting because I've got people in my family that are about as stubborn against the gospel as you can get. But do I believe Jesus can save them? And if I do, then I should be praying diligently for them because I know Christ can And not only is he able to save, he is willing to save. That is good news we need to hear. He is willing to save. You might acknowledge that Christ is able to save anyone, but you might be wondering if he is willing to save someone like you. And the answer is yes, he is. He is willing. He delights to save those who will confess their sin and acknowledge that they have nothing apart from him. If you will come to Jesus acknowledging your absolute need for him, you don't have to wonder if he's willing. His arms are stretched out and he says, come. He will forgive you. He will make you new. He will bring you into God's family and he'll do it right now if you'll come. So we've seen Saul, the violent persecutor, Christ, the sovereign savior, And thirdly, Ananias, the obedient servant. I know I said at the beginning I wanted to look at the four main characters. You might have noticed there's really only three. 
But I say four because the fourth is actually the first. You see, Saul was a different man at the beginning of this. But Jesus interrupted his life. And now things are dramatically and forever changed. So the first main character is now the fourth. And he's the fourth because he's been claimed by Jesus. So let's look briefly as a way of introducing this fourth main character, Saul, the devoted disciple. Like I said, we're only going to introduce him because the rest of the book of Acts is God working in and through Saul to spread the gospel. But this violent persecutor of the church is now a passionate disciple of Jesus Christ. And such is the unmistakable, the unmistakable result of the sovereign working of Christ in a person's life. Hear Paul's own words about this. Philippians 1.6, you all know this. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But for Paul, it wasn't just about what God did at the beginning and what he did at the end. It was about the work that he did all the time in between. Philippians 2, verse 12, he says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it was with Paul, and so it will be with each one of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, what a story. And what a story about what really happened in real history. This violent persecutor, you saved. You changed him forever. And Lord, we are the better off for it. So much of this Bible that we study was written by this man, Saul. He who built up the church changed from a life of seeking to destroy it. God, thank you that we have a Savior who is sovereign. That he overcame Saul and his rebellion and called him and claimed him. Thank you that you've done that for so many of us here. And I pray, God, that there's one here within the sound of my voice today who has never been claimed by Christ, Lord Jesus, that you would claim them even now and that they would willingly come. Lord, help us have an obedient servant's heart like Ananias, trusting that you can save, going to the hard people, praying for those who are tough to reach. Not because we can change them, but because you can. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text that we've been able to study today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.